Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Jeremy McCarthy. Jeremy has worked in the hospitality industry for 20 years, opening and operating spas in luxury resort hotels. He is currently the director for spas and wellness at the Mandarin Oriental Group. He began studying psychology early in his career, but 10 years ago went back and completed a master's degree in applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Jeremy is the author of the book, The Psychology of Spas and Wellbeing, A Guide to the Science of Holistic Healing. Jeremy, can you tell me a little bit about your background, the work you do, and how you got into it? Sure. Well, I uh, my academic background is in psychology. I studied psychology as an undergrad many years ago, um, but I kind of realized early on that I didn't want to pursue a career in psychology because at the time it just seemed to me very negative. I was um, I was interested in psychology because. I was at the time a um, personal trainer and a swim coach, and so I was really interested in the psychology of performance and motivation. But psychology at the time was really focused on depression and mental illness and anxiety and uh, disorders and uh, all of these kinds of negative subjects and, and wasn't really touching on the aspects that I was interested in. So I started a career in the hotel industry. Um, and that's where I've spent most of my uh, my time for the last few decades, uh, opening and operating spas in luxury hotels and resorts. Um, but I always kind of took that psychology uh, background with me uh, along in my career and, and thought about how we apply that to what we do in luxury hospitality and spas, um, delivering experiences that aren't only physical, but also psychologically beneficial for people. And then uh, years later, I ended up going back to school and uh, applying for my master's of applied positive psychology. And when I learned about positive psychology, it kind of immediately struck a chord with me as, as the psychology that I had always been interested in studying but didn't really exist at the time uh, that I initially was going to school. So a couple of questions come up for me. One is, what did you learn when you studied applied uh, positive psychology? And then I'll get to the second question. Well, po positive psychology is kind of a response to the fact that psychology had been predominantly negative for many decades. You know, Fr Freudian psychology was kind of uh, assumed that everybody has these deep, dark, traumas that are affecting them and and these problems that we're having to deal with and that these problems have been instilled in us since early childhood and the relationship that we had with our parents and the only way you would ever overcome these things is through extensive counseling and psychotherapy um, and, and positive psychology kind of flipped psychology a little bit on its head or, or at least uh, shined a light on areas that were, you know, really not being explored very much in the science. So it thought about, well, you know, psychology shouldn't only be about what are the things that go wrong in people's heads, but what are the things that go right with people? Uh, you know, how does happiness work and how does uh, motivation work and, you know, what, what are the the factors that drive positive relationships and um, um, the the science of accomplishment and achievement. And so it kind of became this, you know, science of, of happiness and flourishing, um, which is much more motivating to, uh, to study and, and think about applying to your life rather than, you know, just trying to figure out how to solve people's problems. What were some of the main principles that you remember from from your studying of applied positive psychology? Well, uh, Ma Martin Seligman was one of the, the founders of positive psychology, and, and he, was, um, he was the president of the American Psychological Association, I, I think in 1997, um, when he made this call to focus on some of the positive aspects of mental health. And so one of the things that he talks about is that, you know, really there are five things that everybody 
wants and needs more of in their lives. And um, he uses the the acronym PERMA to represent the P is positive emotions, you know, that everybody needs positive emotional experiences. Um, we all are seeking on some level things that feel good and we want pleasure and we want happiness and we want joy in our lives. Um, the E is engagement. And engagement is kind of like you probably have heard it described as flow, but you know, that feeling when you're just completely immersed in what you're doing and lose track of time because you're just in that state of flow. And um, it's not necessarily that there's some overlap with positive emotions, but a flow state can also be something that's very challenging. Uh, or some people talk about, you know, uh, risk taking activities and, and things that are somewhat dangerous can induce a flow state. So it's it's not only about things going really easy and things feeling good. It's about um, facing challenges in our lives, but but feeling like we're able to meet those challenges, that the challenges don't overwhelm us. And when you're right in that sweet spot of rising to meet the challenges that come before you, that's when we get into that that sense of flow and that feeling of engagement. And then the R is relationships, which is. Uh, really about the importance of positive relationships. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, research on this. Um, you know, one of the, the professors that we studied with was uh, Dr. Valiant, uh, George Valiant out of Harvard University, who did the adult study of human development and followed men um, over the course of their entire lives and, and actually into the next generation. And, and I think by now uh, they're probably on the third generation and just looked at the different factors that affected people's health and well-being across the course of their lives. Um, and one of the things that he found was that positive relationships were one of the most important factors for, um, for human survival and longevity and, and health. And so uh, I, I like the way he describes it, but he says, a question that you can ask that can predict how long someone will live is how many people do you have that you could call at four o'clock in the morning if you needed something. And so that idea of, you know, really having a close network of people that you can lean on is very valuable to us. And then the M in PERMA is meaning and the idea of, um, you know, we all need a sense of purpose and meaning and to feel like we're pursuing something meaningful, um, that we believe in something larger than ourselves or connect to something greater than ourselves, and that there's a reason for us to be here and, and that we find meaning in it. And again, that also um, sometimes overlaps with positive emotions, but sometimes doesn't. You know, if you think about um, people like Mother Teresa or Gandhi or Martin Luther King, you could think, you could say that maybe they were people who had very difficult and challenging lives, but lives that were filled with a deep sense of purpose and meaning. Um, and so that's important. And then the last one, the A, is achievement and accomplishment. And just looking at the science of goals and motivation and uh, how do we set goals and and create goals that are actually uh, useful to us and that we're able to accomplish something with? Um, and so that feeling of wanting to, you know, we all want to feel like we're getting things done and accomplishing something in, in our lives and, and uh, achieving the things that we set out for ourselves. Um, so that's PERMA, and that, you know, is a good quick summary of some of the principles of positive psychology. It's kind of an infinite field, so it's hard to, uh, it's hard to contain. Um, and then one additional thing that I would tack on there is some people add vitality. So some people call it PERMA-V um, to just include the, the idea that we also need to have uh, physical movement in our lives and we need to be connected to our bodies and um, you know, kind of the sense of fulfillment and satisfaction that people get when their bodies are working well and that they're able to use their bodies in, um, you know, kind of exciting ways or interesting ways um, is an important part of a positive life. That's awesome. My next question was, how does the things that you, you studied in school apply and the things that you picked up through your other work over the course of your life apply to 
the things that you do now when you're building experiences in spas? Yeah, I think very early on, I realized, uh, even before I started studying positive psychology, I realized that the experience of going to a spa is very much a psychological one. Uh, but if you look at the way most spas market themselves and talk about what they do, they'll they'll talk about the um, you know kind of the physical treatment uh, that they offer, the ingredients in the product, maybe the facilities that the spas have to offer. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, a good spa experience or a bad spa experience is all about what's going on in the person's head when they come into the spa, and you know how comfortable do they feel. Um, what are they, you know, what are they thinking about? What are they worrying about? How are they using that time as a moment for their own, um, you know, kind of time for quiet contemplation or reflection on personal values? Or are they ruminating about a problem that they had earlier that day or a discussion they had with someone the day before? Um, so, you know, the psychological experience that people have when they come into that um, setting is very impactful and, and to me that's that's really where the magic happens and so when I was studying positive psychology uh, I did my thesis on the psychology of spas and well-being and and really looked at different aspects of the research that had been done and and the elements of psychology that were being studied in this in this uh, positive way and thought about how it applied to what we do in spas and how we could leverage some of that um, and so that was my thesis, which I later published as a book on the psychology of spas and well-being. And it was, you know, really finding that as much as spas tend to talk about these physical aspects of the experience, that really the greatest value of a spa experience might be the fact that spas are one of the only places in modern society where you can go, you can disconnect from technology for a while, you can experience time in silence so you can just allow your mind to settle and and be quiet and and allow your mind to wander uh, and you experience the nurturing touch of another human being and that all three of those things have a profound psychological impact on people uh, which is what makes spas um, so popular yes yeah, true it, we often don't get those things in other places right in my own life, one of the things that I've realized that I really had to consciously do is create space for myself. And oftentimes that space is connected to some of the things that you are describing, right? So space to uh, space for silence, <laughs> space to be with my spouse, space away from uh, the no notifications of my computer or the ringing of my cell phone or that like, so my brain and my body can calm. So it doesn't feel like it's constantly under a state of threat. Or anticipation. I don't know if threat's the right word, but state of anticipation. And you're right, like spas are one of the few places we get this. And and this sort of leads into this idea of well being, right? Can you you talk a little about it in your book? Can you talk to us about how how you define well being? Sure, absolutely. Uh you know, I think it's interesting because we live this is the first time in human history where there is no downtime. You know, we, we've never lived, uh, the human species has never had this happen before. You know, it, it used to be that you would have, our ancestors would have, you know, kind of hours of time and countless hours where they would just have to sit around and wait for something to happen or, you know, go on a long trek in search of something or, you know, go out gathering food or preparing a meal would take a significant amount of time. Um, and so you had all of these things where you just had time to be alone with your thoughts. And even, um, you know, even in my parents' generation or, you know, even in my generation for the, for the majority of my life, you had time where you were stuck in traffic or sitting on a bus or online at the supermarket or online at the bank. And you, you literally had nothing to do but think and, and allow your mind to kind of go where it wanted to go and process what it needed to process. And all of a sudden, you know, 
the uh, the smartphone comes along and we just have this amazing access to information and technology and now there's no more downtime you know we we have lost that um, that space to disconnect so yeah I think um, I think spas give that and and I think that's a component of well-being um, you know well-being obviously goes much more broad than that so I think I, th I think of that as stillness as a as a core part of well-being that we all need to experience stillness in our lives. Um, then there's movement. So you know it's kind of a great paradox of modern life is that we need more stillness and we need more movement because even though our minds are processing more information than ever before, our bodies are increasingly sedentary because we're attached to our technology. So we're sitting down, staring at screens, um, and we're moving a lot less. And so we need to kind of find that, that time to you know, look for spaces where we can allow our minds to be still and give our bodies a chance to move. Um, and so I think those are, you know, those are two of the things that are really uh, people are struggling with nowadays. Um, and then it's also some of the other things that I, I spoke about in reference to positive psychology, but, you know, it's relationships um, and how relationships are evolving and changing in the age of technology. Um, it's um, nourishment and, you know, we also just live in this world where we're constantly surrounded by high calorie food and um you know we're not designed to have that such easy ready access to food everywhere that we go um, and so learning how to kind of manage that situation and and relate to that um, and then you know i think psychological well-being and managing our emotions and being resilient to stress and thinking about how we uh you know ride above life's challenges and and uh take things with with a bit of mindfulness as they come along yeah just a, a few things come for me one um when you talk about nourishment i just read this book called the, the hacking of the american mind it talked about the weaponization of sugar uh, i'm not weaponization is not the word that they used but just like how much sugar is in food and what it does to our body but you're right how high calorie food we weren't sort of uh, as human beings we didn't evolve to get the amount of uh, some of the things that are in our food, like we, we crave them, we crave fat and sugar and, and salt, um, because our body feels like it needs some level of that, but we, we're, we've never had such a ready supply of these things. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, we, we increasingly, we eat most of our meals, um, are prepared by somebody else in exchange for money, right? So we're not so much cooking at home as as maybe we used to or our, our parents' generation used to. And, um, and the problem with that model is that those businesses that we buy all of our food from, they make their money by selling food that tastes really good <laughs> because that's what people are going to buy. And so there's not a whole lot of incentive for... Um, you know, the food economy to um, think about long-term health. You know, it's really driven more around what tastes good in that moment. And those are the things that businesses are going to pop up to make sure that, the, you know, that those kinds of things are available and around you. And, um, you know, if you think about the reason why people experience hunger, people, you experience hunger as, a, as an unpleasant feeling because that, from an evolutionary standpoint, that unpleasant feeling is what motivated our ancestors to get up off of their butts and go look for food. And so, you know, you would feel that sense of hunger and then you would start seeking out food. But it wouldn't be, uh, you would have to go a lot farther than the refrigerator on the other side of the room to find what you were <laughs> looking for or, you know, the fast food restaurant on the nearest corner. You know, it meant you were going out hunting or going out looking for, uh, you know, fruits and, and roots and things that you could find in nature. And so in today's world where, you know, as soon as you feel hunger, you can alleviate it immediately with rich, you know, high sugar, high calorie, great tasting food. And, um, and that's a problem, you know, that we're not, we're not designed for that. So we have to think about how we act in that world or we pay the consequences in our health. 
Yeah. I mean, the other thing I started to laugh for a moment is if you were super, super hungry and you're totally exhausted and then you're going to have to go and get a favor or beg for food or go back to your community and, and hope that they're going to share food with you. And, or if you're sick or something and you can't go get your own food. And, and that sort of brought up this idea that, um, when I was growing up, like we would always eat as a family and, um, how food was a communal activity. And, uh, more recently I've begun to eat with some friends. We do these like soulful dinners where we all sit down and if you want food, you have to ask somebody else to serve it for you. And I have other dinners where everyone helps kind of prepare food and food becoming again, a communal activity. And, and for like the last 10 years, since I moved out to New York city for most of that time, it wasn't, I would just order seamless (laughs) and some guy shows up at my door, drops it off (laughs) and leaves. (laughs) And, uh, but it goes back to what you were saying about relationships and, there's something that's very powerful with eating with people I care about, or even even with strangers, but having that communal aspect. Yeah, ab- absolutely, and um, and you can feel how the world is changing uh, very quickly. Um, we just don't have that same connection. I mean, I, I actually just returned today, actually, uh, from Japan for the last week. And I was visiting uh, our hotel in Tokyo, which is a beautiful hotel. But I also spent a lot of time with uh, Japanese people and going going out and having dinners with them. And, you know, for them, that mealtime is so communal and it is about co- really connecting with other people. And the ritual of the way the whole meal flows and uh and very much like you described in your soulful dinners you know no nobody pours their own drink you always uh kind of pour you know you pour the sake for your for your friend and then they pour it for you but you you never pour your own and so you have this this great sense of community that happens around the dining room table and i think uh Unfortunately, you know, the, and the the world is just changing so fast right now. I mean, I think I think one of the biggest problems is the pace of change is accelerating and and getting faster, and our bodies and minds uh, have evolved over millennia, and so our bodies and minds are designed for the world as it was several thousand years ago, um, and the more the world changes, the more problematic that becomes. And so you can see in this in this relationship aspect, uh, like a lot of countries right now are saying they're, they're describing an epidemic of loneliness because, um, you know, a, a good example is like as the communication platforms change from one generation to the next, you have, you know, people don't, they don't talk to their grandparents anymore the way that they used to because, you know the way the way that the kids are communicating on text message and you know WeChat and WhatsApp and and all of these things, um, the grandparents aren't even on and and don't have really a way to communicate with their grandkids, and so you know the generations are kind of being lost in that gap as the world changes very quickly, and um, and some of the uh, the health organizations in the world say that loneliness is actually has the same impact on longevity as heart disease, smoking, or obesity. So it's a real, we don't think of it that way, but it's actually a real health epidemic um, when communities break down and you don't have that same connection to your family or to your local community. Yeah, I was reading an article and some of these ideas were introduced over the last few days and it was talking about just how cities like how should we begin to think about designing cities and um, with the same problem in mind. And actually Japan, I think, was one of the countries they mentioned that actually struggles with loneliness. Maybe not all segments of society, but uh, I mean, the U.S. has has a problem as well, especially in urban environments. One of the things that came up was that was interesting too. There was a quote in there that said that humans make buildings and buildings shape us. And um, I'm I'm curious sort of how that, again, like sort of shows up in your work. Well, I think it is uh, an important aspect of the spa experience is uh, this ability to just experience the touch of another human being. And um, 
you take it for granted a little bit uh, because, you know, a lot of people are in relationships or they do have um, a significant other or a partner where they're experiencing touch. But a lot of people don't have that. And um, and we need that. You know, you need to have contact with other human beings. And, and there's tons of research uh, showing the importance of that. So, um, so I think having a place where you can go to experience touch and not only touch, but the intention behind the touch is important, which was, which was one of the interesting things that I found in my studies was, you know, just, just to give an example, and you you can imagine the negative side of this, but there, there are studies that show that an electric shock feels more painful um, if you know that someone is is intentionally flipping a switch to shock you, then if it's something that just happens automatically that nobody is controlling, and and you can think about that in your own personal life. Like if something bad happens to you, it always feels worse if you know that it was intentionally caused by another person. That always causes us a lot more anguish. And and the reverse is also true. You know, when when we have a good uh, feeling or a good experience, if we know that it was intentionally being delivered by another human being, those positive experiences are also magnified. And I think um, there's a study, I think I talked about it in my book, where um, they gave uh, people, um, you know, those like uh, massage chairs that you can lie in. And so they would give people a massage and they would ask, you know, how they were feeling before the massage and how they felt after and how they rated the massage experience. And they had two groups. And the only difference between the groups is in one of the groups, the person just sat in the chair and it turned on automatically. And in the other group, a, um, you know, a researcher came over and turned on the chair. And what they found is that when the researcher came and turned on the chair, the person enjoyed the massage more felt better after they had this kind of more positive experience just because there was another human being that was delivering the experience in that way and so I think this is you know one of the great things about going into a spa is you have these you know these the people who work in a spa are people who have are dedicating their lives to helping other people feel good and you know, they want to deliver these great nurturing, pampering, healing experiences to their clients. And so you feel that intention and that care and um, and that just makes the experience that much more powerful. Yeah, I mean, as I thought about the chairs, it just sort of made me laugh at an uncle who bought one of those chairs and it was nice, but again, it goes, like it just sort of reestablishes this line that we've been talking about where, this thing we've been talking about where, We've just become disconnected from other people. Yeah. Well, and it's not quite the same, right? The chair is can never deliver exactly the same kind of feeling that you get when you have a great massage from another human being. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's it's. Quite... I mean, a lot of, a lot of people say that massage therapist is. I always see it at the top of the list of jobs that can't be replaced by AI or robots. Yeah, for sure. And um, I mean, one of the things that came up in another conversation is um, how human touch, prolonged human touch, will release oxytocin in the body. Uh, it's one of the ways to to release it. And I, I guess you probably don't get that that from a chair, but I, I guess I don't know. <laughs> um, but there is a different feeling when somebody touches the touches us, the warmness of our hands or, or their hands, like like uh, the way that it fits or can run across the human body. Like it just doesn't. Like there feels that the sense of connection has a different effect, at least on my body, and um, that can't really quite be replaced by technology. Yeah, there was a there's a concept that I talked about in my book called the effect of person, and it came out in research that they were doing um, where uh, I think they were doing some kind of studies where that involved giving dogs electric shocks, and you know the these kinds of studies don't usually happen very much anymore, but uh, back in the day, there was a lot of psychology research that would be done involving animals and electric shocks and things like that. And um, this wasn't what the study was looking to find, but what they noticed was that the dog's reaction to the shock 
would change if there was a researcher um, in the room at the same time and not just any researcher but you know like the researcher was kind of a companion to the dog and so there was a you know there was a bond there relationship there and if the researcher was in the room when the dog was experiencing an electric shock it it wouldn't have as bad a reaction and it would recover more quickly from the reaction than if the researcher wasn't in the room so you know, even without the researcher touching the dog, just the presence of another human being, um, you know, that you have kind of a, a good relationship with can be beneficial. And, and so, yeah, you, you know, we see, we see little um, snippets of that in a lot of different research studies. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website, Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's super interesting. Um, I, and I'm probably going to misquote this in some way, but I recently read something. I can't remember where I read it, but it's about the longevity and, well, and wellness and relationships. And it was like a similar structured study where they were giving people shock and some form of shock and uh, how people reacted when there was no one there versus when they had their partner there holding their hand. Um, people who were there holding their hand just like functioned much better before anticipation and during a trauma and it affected their well-being. And uh, But just this idea of, it just sort of re reaffirms this sort of idea that you're uh, from my perspective, this idea that you're communicating around the importance of presence and the importance of, of other people not feeling a support and also a physical contact and how that affects well-being. Yeah, I, ha I haven't seen the research on that using shocks, but I've seen um, a lot of studies that are similar to what you describe where they'll do... Um, some kind of little micro trauma on a person's skin you know they'll they'll um like intentionally create a blister on somebody's skin and they'll find if if they have you know a, a loving partner there holding their hand or something when they create this blister that the the skin damage is not as bad as it would be and it recovers more quickly and um and they do attribute some of that to oxytocin and and things like that but so there's this whole yeah, this, this whole chemistry that happens when we're around other people that helps us to heal. And that, that's kind of the way that I think about a spa is as a place to go for self-healing. Um, you know, because I think the modern healthcare industry, um, which has made, you know, incredible advances and done amazing things for human health, but by virtue of being so evidence-based, um, it's kind of stripped away um, things that are, you know, quote unquote, placebo, and and placebo, you know, has a very negative connotation in in the modern world because we think of a placebo as some, you know, literally something that doesn't work, but but actually a a placebo is something that it, it's a it's an. Uh, expression of healing that happens without an external intervention. So, you know, I think one way to think of placebo medicine is self-healing. And, you know, when you're trying to measure the effectiveness of a drug or, or some other external procedure, you want to show that that external procedure is more powerful than what someone can just do on their own. 
Um, but we have discounted the human ability to heal ourselves. And I think having somewhere that you can go, like a spa, where you can be in an environment that's just, you know, very comforting and surrounded by people that are very nurturing and experiencing touch um, and um, in an environment that contributes to relieving anxiety and calming the mind, uh, that all of those things contribute to our own ability to self-heal. Do you think that there's any, I mean, some of these, these things that we're talking about that, um, someone might get through the spa experience. Some people listening to this may have never had a spa experience. Um, some of them might be regulars at, at spas. Do you feel like, I mean, you said earlier, like you can't get those three things at, uh, that you described at the beginning of the podcast, the human touch, the disconnection the, from technology, the silence in any other place in modern society, uh, than a spa. Um, but do you feel like there's sort of other places that you can get maybe two of them or, or places that, people can begin to nurture these things? Like, how do they nurture well-being outside of the spa environment? Sure. That's a really good question. Uh, well, I think, first of all, in in it used to be that there were three places that we went where we would be separated from technology and kind of alone with our thoughts. Um, you know, one was a church. The other was on an airplane. Uh, and then you had spas. Um, and... You know, less people are going to church nowadays, but I do think that, you know, those kinds of um, spiritual communal gatherings, whether it's, you know, a church or a synagogue or a temple or even a meditation retreat or something like that, where you go, you know, for the purpose of contemplating higher values and reflecting on things that are important to you and experiencing time away from technology and experiencing time in silence. Um, you know, there are places like that that you can go and experience those things and where there's a community behind it even better, right? Because then you also have the people and the network and, and uh, those aspects. Um, the other thing that I would say is very accessible is just being out in nature. And, um, you know, I talk about spas as a place to go to get away from technology because a lot of our hotels are in urban city centers where, you know, people are really spending all of their time um, on technology in noisy environments and in, in noisy urban locations and it's not so easy to escape it um, but if you have an opportunity to get outside of the city and go into nature and be on a beach or be in the woods and um, get away from from urbanization for a few days um, in fact it is you know this is a, a a well-known concept in Japan where they have um, a, a term for it that they call forest bathing and the importance of just going out and spending time being immersed in the woods and the value that you get from those experiences. Yeah, it's awesome. You mentioned Japanese culture a few different times. What are some of the things that you've learned about well-being from Japanese culture? Well, I think... Um, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert on Japanese uh, culture, but I've just, it's on my mind because I spent the last week there and um, it's a fascinating culture. Uh, I think it's um, what, what makes it so interesting is they have such uh, pride in their own culture and such strong beliefs in their own culture. And so because of that, I think Japan has not. Um, succumbed to globalization in the same way that a lot of other countries have. So it's a great place to go to really experience their uniqueness and, um, and those aspects. And so I really appreciate that about Japan. Um, but I think in general, in the Asian cultures, um, you know, they have a very holistic approach to wellness. Um, where you know it's never been uh, just physical. I mean, I, I think for me growing up in the U.S., you know, now I'm thinking a lot about these aspects of psychology and mental wellness, and and actually I think the the entire wellness community has caught on to those ideas and is recognizing the importance of mental health and these aspects of relationships and loneliness have become mainstream, but 
at the time that I was growing up in the U.S., I think if you thought about wellness, it was mostly about diet, exercise, and smoking. You know, it was really about the physical aspects of health. Whereas I think Asian cultures for thousands of years have really thought about the duality of mind and body and that you can't separate those two things and that well-being is something that flows through that that wholeness of what it is to be a person and you can't just look at the physical part in um, absence of the mental part or vice versa um, and so I think that you know kind of integrated holistic approach that comes from places like Japan and China uh, is very powerful and I think the the rest of the world is catching up with them I think um, you know what wh one other point that I would just make on Asian cultures is uh, mindfulness, which is, you know, massively trendy right now and everybody is talking about it and everybody is, um, you know, is there, there are books and apps and people are getting into meditation and mindfulness around the world. And, you know, again, this is something that comes out of Asian cultures and has been around for thousands of years and that, they, that have been practiced in these Asian cultures for a long time. And now the Western world is, is finally catching on. And I think, um, I think, we're only at the beginning of the mindfulness trend because I think the rise of mindfulness is a direct response to the rise of technology and the increasing pace of change in the world. And so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the world is changing so fast and you have all of these new technologies coming on. And um, so our ability to recognize how the automatic programs that are going on in our minds um, may not reflect the current reality because we've inherited these programs from previous generations that, you know, weren't living in the age of uh, food everywhere and technology everywhere and, and urbanization and, um, you know, being separated from families. All of these things are, are new in the modern world and our minds didn't evolve for that world. So mindfulness kind of is... is um, the ability or the skill of, you know, learning how to see your mind in, in how it functions and, and potentially being able to um, override it when you, when you see it uh, responding in an inappropriate way to the, to the world of today. You gave a talk at the Global Wellness Summit and you talked about wellness in the age of technology. You've talked a lot about it, technology and how it affects wellness uh, already. Is there anything else from that talk that you think is really kind of pertinent here? Well, I think, I mean, you know, sometimes, and you probably are already hearing it in our conversation today, uh, you know, I, I tend to be a little bit wary of technology because I see a lot of um, potential downsides of technology that I think uh, we're not ready for and we're not thinking about. So I'm worried about technology, but I also, uh, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, a complete Luddite and, and you know, I, I use social media, I'm on technology all the time for my work and technology is great. So the, the way that I describe it is that the problem with technology is not that it's bad, it's that it's too good. And the technology is so good that we sometimes don't realize all of the things that we're sacrificing um, for the sake of technology. So, you know, we all have these amazing tools that we carry around in our pocket where we can access, you know, the answer to every question that's ever been asked, every book that's ever been written, every song that we could possibly want to listen to. Um, it's all right there at our fingertips and it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible gift that we have and it's incredibly powerful. But at the same time, it is because of that access to this whole new world of technology that we are starting to sacrifice in real world relationships. We're sacrificing our sleep. We're sacrificing the amount that we move our bodies. We're sacrificing giving our minds uh, a chance to process and recover from all the information that we're consuming. So there's all these sacrifices that are being made along the way. And, um, 
you know, so we've we've been thinking about this in our spas of you know how can we help people to um, create a better relationship with technology and and we've done some kind of digital detox and digital wellness retreat events where we take people and make them give up their phones for a couple of days and and focus on their own personal well-being and um, there there are a few things that happen when you when you step away from technology for a couple of days. First of all, I think you don't realize what you're sacrificing for technology until you step away from it. So when you're in the midst of it, the technology is great and people love their technology and, and we all enjoy our devices and we like the access to all the things that we have. Um, but you just we might not realize the sacrifices that are being made. And it's only when you take some time away from the technology that you go, oh, yeah, you know, I should do more of this, too. Or, you know, I've missed out on doing these kinds of experiences. Um, so having that time away helps people to realize that. The other thing that I think happens is when you when you do give yourselves that time to step away from technology and allow the mind to settle and give yourself a space for calm, as we've talked about, um, it allows you to maybe reconnect with your higher values or you know what what is really important to you. Because when you're on technology, you're kind of being spoon-fed by the algorithms you know, what you should think about, where you should go, who you should date. Um, you know, the technology kind of just sweeps us along. And it's only when you disconnect that you can, you know, if you take some time for soul searching and, and personal contemplation that you can think about that. So actually, um, we're, we're doing an event right now in all of our spas around the world that we call Silent Night. We do it every year around the holidays where we invite people to come into the spas and it's just for a night of silence. So you go and you have your spa treatment, but there's no music, there's no talking, the therapist doesn't ask you any questions or, or you know, give you any, uh, recommend any products or anything like that. They just give you the chance to use that time uh, to reconnect to whatever's going on in your own head and, and what your values and goals are. And then the third thing that I would say that we have found in these retreats, which was not at all something that we had anticipated or expected, but is that the ability for people to connect with one another once you remove the technology. And just to give you an example, we were doing one of these retreats and we had uh, a yoga class in the morning. And I joined in in the yoga, and so we we all did yoga, and then there was kind of a group of us that kind of got together in the middle of the room and started talking to each other. And um, another woman who had been in the class came over, and she joined the group, and she said, well, I can't look at my phone, so I guess I'll come over and talk to you guys. <laughs> And yeah, and we, we all laughed at that because we realized that none of us would have been talking to each other, right? You know, the, the yoga class would have ended and we would have all gone immediately to our phones and checked our messages and, you know, caught up with what was going on in the world. And because we didn't have our phones, suddenly people start talking to each other. And, you know, I've seen over, you know, even just one day or two days of people being together without technology, these deep, close friendships that form very quickly and, and very powerfully uh, because you just don't have that, that distraction of technology in the way. It's awesome. Um, and I think it's so true. And I, I, as you were talking, I wrote down some of the things that you're saying. I was making little notes and I thought about music, right? So or some of the things that came up, I'll share. One was like, you mentioned music. And yeah, we, we have all the songs in our world in our pocket, but music used to be a communal activity where people would all participate in the making of the music or they would sing together or like it was communal. And and it was somebody from our community oftentimes who might be doing the singing uh, in another time. <laughs> um, I thought about sleep and lights, how uh, uh, at one point I realized that I was having migraines and I didn't know what it was the cause. And it was from uh, living in New York City and having the lights come through my bedroom and just having basically the sun always on. Uh, I thought about what you said around movement and just sort of being stuck around the computer. And I've had to start giving myself walks, but uh, allowing myself to go for walks. But in a, in a place like New York City, yeah, there isn't a ton of trees. We've got Central Park and we got Prospect Park, but it's, it's always urban. And um, 
this idea of giving our mind a break. I had a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday who's a psychologist. And I was saying, you know, when I was a kid, I used to get the mail once a day. <laughs> now I get it hundreds of times a day. <laughs> and, and, and how that's affected me or um, that I used to be able to, if, if I wasn't home or somebody wasn't home, I didn't get a phone call. Maybe I could leave an answering machine. Uh, but there was that space. And now my phone uh, rings wherever I go. Um, and I get these text messages wherever I go. Um, you talked about food. I mean, just it's interesting. You talked about dating, and I want to ask you more about that. But and about this idea of technology, we can date. I have a client of mine who's dating a girl across the country, and so that they'll FaceTime. But FaceTiming every day is not the same as being in the same room with someone every day. <laughs> um, I about dating apps and just this idea that we go and we meet somebody and. and you go on an app like Hinge and it recommends that this person would be great for you. Well, what is that based off, right? There's no communal aspect. Oftentimes people don't, in an urban environment, they might not even have any of the same friends. And so um, there is no communal aspect of that. Like in other times, the community helped nurture the relationship. And now we, we start the relationship and decide whether or not we want to bring people into our communities. But just it's just interesting how... I mean, this shows up in so many different places. I mentioned earlier the food example of where food used to be communal. Like um, you would sit down, you'd work, make food together, you'd repair it, you eat together. Now, uh, in urban environments at least, you just go on Seamless and Uber Eats and they bring it right to your door and you don't have to interact with anybody. Um, <laughs> the delivery driver for about two seconds. Yeah, well, and it's it's like it's like I say the uh, the problem with technology is not that it's bad; it's that it's so good, and it's going to get way better. You know, I mean, you're you're going to be able to just kind of summon up everything that you want with a couple of clicks of a button, or you won't even need the button because you'll just have voice activation, or eventually you'll have the chip in your head, and you know whatever you want can just kind of appear, and you don't need other people. And so, so yeah, it's it's a little bit scary about what what is the world going to be like as these technologies get even better than they are today, even stronger than they are today. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think dating apps is a good example. Uh, you know, eventually, do you even date, or do you just kind of connect with whoever your your algorithm tells you is the right person for you? And you know, eventually, the technology will have it so figured out that um, you know the app will know better than you will who the right partner is for you. So, <laughs> um, you know, maybe that will save people a lot of uh, time and, and anguish, but it'll be a very different world from the world that we've grown up in. Yeah, I mean, it's wild. But I still wonder about things like smells and tastes and touch. And there's a lot of things that even though these apps are getting better and better and better, um, they haven't quick figured out how, quite how to solve it. Like it goes back to the to the human touch versus the massage chair. There's still something like even if they, as it, as technology gets better, that it can't quite capture the human to human connection. I, do you have any other thoughts on how technology is affecting relationships and dating? Well, um, I mean, first of all, I should say that I actually met my wife on Match dot com. Um, so. Uh, you know, I'm not against um, online dating. In fact, I thought I, you know, I thought it was a great thing. Um, you know, I wasn't the kind of guy who wanted to be hanging out in bars and, you know, trying to go and pick up women. And, and you know, that was kind of the way it used to happen, maybe before uh, before all this technology came along. So, you know, I think I think the dating apps have have in some ways helped a lot of people. Um, but I think it, I think the reason why uh, I feel like it worked well for me is because I realized very early on that you know it's very easy to put up a persona or a certain um, curated image online, and a lot of people that you meet when you're um, you know when you are doing online dating is you meet a lot of people who don't live up to what you thought they were going to be like when you looked at their um, their profile and so that was kind of that was a little bit my experience and and so I felt like um, to counteract that I wanted to make sure that my profile showed the real me 
um, because I figured that way I wouldn't waste a bunch of time meeting people who weren't going to be interested. So, you know, instead of having just that one picture of you, that's the best picture that's ever been taken. I had, you know, like 12 different pictures, which, you know, back in the day of match.com, it was, you know, usually you just either had one, one profile picture or a few pictures, but I put up a lot of different pictures because I wanted, um, the potential prospects to see different aspects of me and what I looked like and my personality and the things that I was interested in. And I wanted to just put it all out there uh, so that whoever I met when they met me would be, yeah, this is kind of what I was expecting, or this is, this is what I saw in the profile and there, there would be no disappointment. Um, but the, the other thing that I think that I realized in, in my online dating experience and Really, the world has changed a lot since then, so this is all pre-Tinder. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't spend a lot of time on the app. It was kind of, you know, if there was the possibility of mutual interest, then it was like, hey, let's meet up and get together and see, um, you know, see how things go from there. So, so I think for me, it was important to get into the real world as quickly as possible. And that's where you would really see whether the connection was there or the attraction was there. It was the right um, blend of personalities and things like that. But if you spent a lot of time kind of texting back and forth on an app, um, you, you could you could go on like that for a long time and never really get to know the other person. Any other thoughts on how we can effectively navigate some of the challenges with modern technology? Well, I think what's important is, um, I mean, first of all, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I think mindfulness is incredibly important, and I think it's going to be even more important. So I think having a mindfulness practice, um, you know, it's almost as as much as everybody focuses on the need to exercise your body, I think given the fact that your mind is being um, in some sense manipulated every day by your devices, the stronger that you can make your mind uh, to be able to stand up against some of that is going to be beneficial. So I think mindfulness is huge. I think it's really important and, and something people should uh, should spend some time thinking about. Um, but the other thing I would say is, you know, if willpower is your strategy uh, for managing your relationship with technology, then you're pretty much doomed for failure because, you know, the, these technologies are designed to be smarter than, than we are, and they're designed by people who are usually smarter than we are. And so um, they're going to figure out how to kind of um, get us, you know, and, and, and to um, kind of uh, hit, our, hit us in our weak spots and, and keep us online and keep us connected. So, um, so I think, you know, trying to use willpower and trying to just be strong um, and using, you know, your own self-motivation to keep yourself on track for the goals that are most important to you is, is not a very good strategy. So you really have to, uh, and like I say, I think you have to get away from technology to really think about what it is that you are trying to accomplish in your life and what, what is important to you and what your values are. And then while you're away from technology to think about how you want to use technology um, to help you and how technology can hinder you. And then come back to technology with some clear boundaries in place and you know some rules or guidelines around how you use it, when you use it, what you give yourself access to. Um, but try to set it up in a way where where the technology is serving you and that you're not uh, becoming a slave to it. Jeremy, this has been awesome. Um, I'm towards the end of our conversation. Any last things you want to share um, with the listeners? I think maybe the last thing I would say just to end on something positive is, you know, like I say, I think technology is good in many ways. And this podcast is a great example. I mean, you're sharing ideas with people, you're getting, um, you know, you're having these interesting discussions with people and you're helping people to learn about how to improve the quality of their lives. And I get, I mean, I've learned so much from 
listening to podcasts, from reading blogs, from connecting with people on the internet, from following people whose work I'm interested in. So I think there is a very um, powerful and beneficial use of technology for these kinds of uh, forums. And, um, you know, so it's just a matter of not uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but figuring out you know, what is, what is the kind of content that's out there that really is valuable and beneficial to you? And how do you expose yourself to that without maybe being distracted by things that are just taking away your time from things that are really important? That's awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Jeremy, his book, uh, the different things that he does, we're going to post some links on the Craft Christmas website and with it in the description of this podcast so you can learn about him more easily. Thank you again for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.